The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, we are in uh, the book of Mark. So this is uh, a guy by the name of Mark's account of Jesus' life. Um, and he has basically been, been writing this uh, account of Jesus' life to help others find out who Jesus really is and then to consider what it means to actually follow him. And so there's this progression all the way through Mark's account. And one of the things that Mark does really, really carefully uh, is Mark is always doing contrasts. He's always wanting us to see this in contrast to this. Um, it's, it's another way that writers, ancient writers, would really, really make points, right? So sometimes for you and I, when we, when we send a text, we add an emoji, okay? We, we kind of put the hard words on, but then smiley face. Um, there's, there's different things that you and I do in today's context to, to help get the point across with our writing. We might go caps lock, we might go bold, we might go underline. You're going to see some of that in my PowerPoint today. It's quite incredible how I do that for you. Uh, it's quite a skill. Um, so one of the ways that an ancient writer would, would do is they would make contrast, which as the readers would read it, they would see that really, really quickly. And so I want to bring up for you a few of these, these contrasts today. And there's really four in our passage. We're in Mark 14. Now, before we get into this, I have to clean up Last week's sermon. Okay, if you were here, Gareth, uh, Gareth preached a really, really difficult sermon. So we're going to spend about the first 20 minutes just cleaning that thing up. Uh, no, we're not. Uh, Gareth last week sort of took us through this part where Jesus is kind of anticipating the future and he's, he's kind of getting his disciples to prepare themselves. And so the big point last week is don't be sleepy. Be alert, be ready, because stuff is ahead. Stuff is coming. Now that the, the story really changes, it's like... It's like a different bit of music comes into the movie. And without any words spoken, we, we feel emotion. And the emotion that they want us to feel is angst. It's like, ooh, this is, this is getting a little dark. So from now on, there are no more jokes. Just straight serious. And if you're here, I'm only joking. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might go, man, this is really, really serious. It's kind of like these guys take stuff pretty seriously. Uh, we take Jesus very seriously. We take the Bible very seriously. We don't actually take ourselves that serious. Uh, that's kind of how we talk about it. But we, we believe that this book has a lot to tell us about Jesus. And so this particular part of the scene, I, I kind of want to encourage and help us to feel it, to sense what Jesus is doing. Um, and so what Mark does is he creates these contrasts. And so... The first contrast we're going to see is this contrast of plans. So Mark 14, verse 1, it says, It was now two days before Passover. This is the number one date of the Jewish calendar. This feast uh, is a really, really important thing. So it's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so this, this feast would go for seven days. The Passover is sort of one specific day and one meal. But it says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. I love that the word stealth is in ancient Bible. It's like Navy SEAL stealth. They're seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, what we probably don't think about is just how important this date is and what's going on in the context, right? So you and I, you and I probably right now are like, whoa, it's nearly Easter. How many people here think time is flowing? It's like, oh, I'm, wow. You know, Christmas finished and then straight out with the, the bread at, at Woolies. And it's like, already? We're moving in, right? And we, we feel this. We, we feel the sense of our lives are busy. We've got so much going on. There's so much chaos. 
And what, what the Jewish calendar would do is it would bring rhythm to the life of a follower of God. And so they would have these feasts at different times throughout the year so that they never felt like what you and I feel like, which is like, whoa, time is flowing. Where's all that gone? It's like these things are just rhythmed into their lives. So that They always are like, this is coming. This is coming. This is coming. This is coming. They know exactly where they are. Right? And that's what this, this feast and this Passover. And so it's got this plan that God has through a feast to prepare people to get them ready. And the contrast here is that God has a plan and the religious leaders have a plan. And those plans seem at odds, but actually they're to do the exact same thing, which is to get Jesus on a cross so that he can die for his people and rescue and save people. And so there is this clear, strong contrast. And so this Passover is this big feast. It's one of the pilgrim feasts, which means hundreds of thousands of people from outside of Jerusalem would travel all the way into the city. So you've got to think of Jerusalem and you've got to think of hundreds of thousands of people everywhere. It is packed the most busiest time of the city. People have moved in, they've brought their tents, they've brought their animals, they've brought their families, and they are going to uh, participate in this feast. Now, Passover basically is something that happened in Israel's history. You might remember the story of the Exodus, where the Israelites were held in captivity and slavery to the Egyptians. And over a period of 400 years, they enslaved the people of God, and what happened was is the people would cry out to God and it says that God heard their cries. And so he raises up a man named Moses. And he says to Moses, I want you to go back to the Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And so this is kind of what he does. And then there's a story of the 10 plagues. And every time Moses would come back to Pharaoh and say, listen, if you don't let the people go, another thing's going to happen to your people. And in many ways, we, we, we don't really probably think of it like this, but in many ways, what God is actually doing through these 10 times is being very, very gracious. He's saying, I'm going to give you a chance to turn away from your ways and do what I'm asking you to do. And the 10th plague was essentially the taking of the life of the firstborn son, which to us in modern culture is like, how, what do we do with that? In reality, a short time before this, Pharaoh has instructed all the midwives to actually kill every boy of the Israelites, and they refused because they're good midwives. They're like, we aren't doing that. And so there's this sense of like, you decided to do this, and now I'm going to actually come back to you, and I'm going to execute the exact same thing that you were going to do. And he warns them. But he also warns the Israelites. And here's what he says to the Israelites. Listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a lamb. I want you to make sure it is perfect. Make it the best lamb you've got, and I want you to kill that lamb. Now, my wife's a vegan, so it's very hard for me to talk about this stuff right here in the room right now. But this is in the Bible. Yeah, that's right. I don't want to be married long. That's the plan. So you've got you to drop in a little bit of humor and then realize that humor was bad. You're about to die. So I might not see you guys next week. So they would kill this lamb, and then they would get a hyssop branch, and they were told to, to take the blood of that lamb and put it all over the doorposts. And it would be a sign that you as my people are covered by the blood of the lamb. And so as the angel would come through the city, it would pass over whichever house had covered themselves, covered the, the doorposts and lintels with that blood, and it would say, we have passed over you. And then what God instructed them was, this is something I want you to do, 
for the rest of your lives is every year I want you to remember this day when I passed over you and I saved you. And so the feast is such an important thing to a Jew, and they would remember this moment. This is about God saving his people. And the irony is, is that the religious people here are supposed to be worshipping this God, thanking this God for deliverance, but instead they're seeking to kill this God. See the contrast? See the irony? And then it moves on. There is the contrast of preparation. The next part, we're going to move quite quickly, but the next part we see this contrast between this, this unnamed poor woman and Judas. Judas Iscariot. And so there is this, this unnamed woman. It says, uh, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of anointment of pure nard. That's a cool word too. So many cool words in the Bible. Very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So there is this unnamed woman. Uh, the Gospel of John actually names her. He lets us know that it's actually Mary. You might remember if you've been around for a while, you might remember there's Mary and Martha, these two sisters, and have a brother named Lazarus. That's actually who it is. It's not the same woman from the book of Luke, chapter 7. It's a different story, but similar. So Mark doesn't name her. He often doesn't do this. He, just, he wants to get away from all the specific details. He wants us just to see the contrast in the story. And so she comes in. And what we're supposed to see is she is unnamed. She is a woman. And she is giving everything. So she breaks open this flask, this, this uh, what do they call it? Uh, ointment of pure nard, and she spreads it all over Jesus. And the disciples are there, and they're upset about this because she is wasting this precious ointment. Now, this precious ointment in today's figures would be somewhere worth between about forty dollars to $70,000. Okay? That's roughly what it would be in our Australian context. And she, in one moment, has smashed it and anointed Jesus. Yet at the exact same time, it tells us that Judas is in this room and he is not seeking to give to Jesus, to worship Jesus, but actually intentionally to go out and betray him. Contrast. Judas is named. His name is Judas Iscariot and he said he is one of the twelve. So verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests. So instead of going to Jesus, he goes to the religious elite in order to betray him. Rather than worship Jesus, he betrays him. And it says that when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So instead of spending and giving out of an overflow of abundance, he is seeking to be greedy and gain. The way Tim Keller says it, I find it really helpful, is he says, the woman sees Jesus as beautiful says that she has done something beautiful. Judas sees Jesus as useful. I will get whatever I can from you to make my life better. Here she's giving up. Remember, she's poor. In other words, this isn't something that she's worked to earn and save. This has been something that's been passed down through the generations to her. So it not only has monetary value, it is sentimental. And she is leaving nothing. She breaks this particular... Uh, vase or whatever it might have been on Jesus. So there is the contrast of the plan, there's the contrast of preparation. And what Jesus says, he says this to, it says, Leave her alone, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. 
But she has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She's not, she's not just coming to Jesus and just, just wasting something. She realizes. Jesus has been telling all through the story, I'm going to go to a cross and die. I'm going to go to a cross and die. And the in crowd, the insider, is not understanding that, but the outsider is. And so she is realizing that in Jewish culture and context, you would anoint or you would put oils and spices and things on bodies before burial. Jesus isn't going to get that. So she comes to him and she anoints him, preparing him for burial. So both her and Judas, again, doing it two different ways, are preparing Jesus for the cross. She is doing it in a way to anoint him so that he's ready for his burial. And Judas is over here trying to betray him so that he would be sold and taken to the cross. And so the irony is, again, that there is a plan that Judas has that is actually the same as God's plan. And then there is the contrast of meals. So verse 12 says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will... Uh, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is really important because, remember, they're seeking by stealth to kill Jesus. So the rabbi can't really just go out in the middle of the town and just kind of get all the bits and pieces he needs for this meal, this Passover meal that they would celebrate as part of this feast. But what he has done is he has planned the room. So he's worked out that he's made a deal with some guy somewhere where he's like, hey, listen, I need you to go ahead and prepare this room because come on this time, I need to get there. And so in, in a Jewish culture, you would have like some houses would only be one story, but some would be two. And so it's this upper room. And so you would go up there. Rabbis would often do their teaching there. They would sit around. They would recline at tables and they would talk and eat and feast. And so he's, he's met some person and he's made this arrangement. So they're like, OK, wh where are we going to do? He's like, listen, I've already prepared the place. You guys, you go out, you find a guy who's got this water thing and you'll see him and then when you go to him, say, the teacher has said this and so he's kind of organized this whole thing and the interesting thing here is Jesus, Jesus is operating now by stealth. They've been operating by stealth to kill him. He's operating by stealth to have a meal with his disciples. Do you see the contrast and the irony all through this? Mark is so clever in the way he presents this. So Jesus has been organizing, and so he says to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now that's important because the man who's carrying the jar of water, normally in that time, that day, this is, this is a job that ladies would do. So in a crowd that's hundreds of thousands of people, there's only going to be a few men carrying jars. So it's easy for them to spot, and then they go to him, see him, where's the room, and then they have to go and prepare a feast. And so that's what they do. Now, I want to walk through a little bit for you. I want to simplify it as best I can for you. But what was involved in a Passover feast? Because what we'll see next is Jesus takes the Passover feast and he moves it into communion, which is what you and I do. And there is this connection. So on the screen, there's going to be a few items here. But essentially, there are, there are 16 elements and stages to a Passover meal. And they're very, very particular. They're very, very specific. And you need to do each step. And so we're not going to do that today. I'm just going to walk you through them. But essentially, uh, you would have a lamb. Everyone had to bring a lamb. So as these hundreds of thousands of people are coming to the city, they're also bringing lambs to remind them of how their houses had been protected by the blood of the lamb. There was the unleavened bread. So God told them, listen, you're not going to have time. When Pharaoh works this out, you're not going to have time to, to cook and bake 
You don't have time to heat the oven up to 250 degrees before you put the thing in. So what we're going to do is we're not going to put yeast and have yeast because that's now going to take time. So they just have flat bread. So it's unleavened bread. So they would intentionally eat this same type of bread again. There would be a bowl of salt water reminding them of the tears that they would shed in Egypt as slaves, as well as the waters of the Red Sea that they miraculously passed through. They had a collection of bitter herbs. So this is horseradish. Mm. Chicory, endive, lettuce, all of these sort of things to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. Uh, If you ever get to taste this, it's really, really gross. It's really bad. Taste horrible. Uh, There's cherisheth paste. So it's a mixture of apples, dates, pomegranates, and nuts. And this would remind them of of the, the clay in which they used to build the bricks in slavery. And then there were four cups of wine. To which some of you said, finally, something good in the meal. <laughs> the meal essentially is organized around these four cups. And these four cups are essentially four promises from Exodus that they would be reminded of. So this, I think, if you go to the next page, we'll go back. So this is the, the scripture that they would read in the Passover. I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty axe of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And they would recite this and be reminded as they're taking each of these cups every time. They're thinking of the promises of God. So cup one is the cup of the Kaddush. It's this idea of sanctification and set apart. This meal is not like any other meal. It's sanctified. It's set apart. It's different from every other meal. And literally throughout the taking of the meal, little children would ask, why are we doing this? What's, what's the point of that? And so there's this space and this opportunity. It's a very, very family meal where these young people would get a chance to sort of ask, why are we, why are we drinking this? Why are we eating this? The head of the family would pray over the meal. And everyone would drink. He would wash his hands. They would then get this piece of parsley or lettuce. And they would basically mix in it with the herbs. And they would dip it in the salty water. And they would eat it. So that they could be reminded. And it's really bad. I've tasted this. It's like, oh, not good. And they would break bread. And then the head of the family would pray two prayers of blessings. And then they'd move into what I call, it's not the proper name, but I call it story time. Now you and I, we don't have time for this. You're already like, how long is this sermon going for? About another 50, so stick in there. (laughs) They would go slowly and then they would start telling the story from the very, very beginning. And they'd walk through. It would take about 40 minutes. Like, man, that's our whole service time nearly. It's like, yeah. And they would recite it and go over it and over it and over it. Then they would move to singing and they would sing My Redeemer Lives by Hillsong. (laughs) They would sing Psalm 113, then Psalm 114. Then they would move to cup two, the cup of the Haggadah, meaning or explaining is kind of what it means. And so they would then drink another drink, wash their hands in preparation. Then a, a grace would be prayed. The bread would be mixed with herbs and dipped into that karasheth paste, reminding them again of the slavery of their their parents and their forefathers. And then they would eat the lamb and wash their hands. Then they would move to cup three, the cup of thanksgiving or the baraka. 
And they would pray a prayer of thanksgiving for the mercy of God in his deliverance. They would then follow that with a petition regarding the promised Messiah to come. And then they would drink again and then they would sing, shout to the Lord. (laughs) Psalm 115 all the way through to Psalm 118. And then they would finish with cup number four, called the cup of halal, which is the cup of praise. And then they would sing, Come Thou Fount. For those of you who are new, it's the only song I like in church. Every other song means nothing to me. Come Thou Fount is the only song. If I was actually uh, a dictator, we would sing, Come Thou Fount. We'd do the first three songs, Come Thou Fount. The last two songs at the end, Come Thou Fount. And you would all know every word. It is the greatest Christian song of all time. But no, they would actually, they would then sing Psalm 136. And as we take communion today, we're actually going to read that together. And that would be the, the climactic song that they would sing. Now think about it. Jesus is walking them through this. They've done this every year of their lives. But he interrupts it. Somewhere in the breaking of bread and this whole thing, he's like, now, side note, one of you is going to betray me. Damper the mood, Jesus. We're remembering Passover. This is great. He kind of pulls out, yeah. And it's the one who's eaten from the cup and he's kind of pointing out that Judas, he knows it's Judas and he points out someone is going to betray me. And then like all self-righteous people, well, it's not me. (laughs) Anyone here got kids? Yes. This is every child ever. What? Whilst Nikos are in the hand, that Nico on the wall could not have been me. How could it have been me? They're like, not me. As you'll see, it's actually all of them will forsake and deny Jesus. Like, not not me. And then Jesus kind of does another sort of move and he says, listen, actually this Passover meal was really pointing to the ultimate Passover, which is coming. And so he kind of reorders the way that they're thinking about this Passover. And he says in verse 22, he says, and they were eating... He took bread and after blessing it, you can see that blessing there. So he's probably in cup three here and broke it and gave it to them. And he says this, take this, my body. Hang on. All of these elements are reflective of the past. It's everything that's previously happened thousands of years ago in the Exodus. He's like, no, actually, all of that was pointing to to me. Take this. This bread is actually not just reflective of what has happened. It's also going to be reflective of what will happen in the next 24 hours. My body is going to be broken for you. Take it. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, see we're kind of in stage three here. He gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Again, he's saying, listen, you thought these cups are just representing something that is previous. This is actually pointing to something that would come. And so there's this contrast between these two meals. And Jesus is like, listen, something is coming ahead that is even better than the rescue that was previous. And I want you to start to rhythm and order your life in a new way that would remember what is coming. And then that would now be the moment of your past. So since here, if you read the book of Acts, things start to shift and change as people start to follow Jesus. And now you and I in this great tradition, we do a thing called communion. And it's supposed to be sort of tied to this rhythm thing of like, listen, every single week you are thinking about what you've got to do, your job, you've got to think about your kids, you've got to think about relationships, you're thinking about bills, you're thinking about all these things. I want to rhythm something in to take chaos and create order. 
where you are reminded anew of the truth of who God is and what he's done. And then we finish with this contrast of faithfulness. There is this sense of these followers of Jesus so wish they could be faithful. They try really hard, but they fall short. Yet, the king is truly faithful. And this is why we celebrate communion, because we do not celebrate our own faithfulness. The Christian faith is not about a whole bunch of bad people becoming good people. That's not what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is a whole lot of people who aren't faithful follow the faithful God who over time helps us and strengthens us and gives us His Spirit and gives us the Bible, the Word of God, and He gives us His church to help us eventually over time become more faithful. But it's actually more dependent on who God is and what God has done than it has to do with what you and I do. Because you and I some days are faithful and some days we are not. And in those faithless days, we need to be like the disciples who eventually over time realize Jesus died for that faithlessness. He was faithful So in our weakness, in our sort of struggle with sin and the things that we do right or do wrong, we don't get crushed under that weight because then we look to him and go, he was crushed for us. And so it says, and when they had sung a hymn, Psalm 136, then they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus says to them, you're going to fall away, all of you. I love verse uh, 28. It says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah there, but then he says this, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you know what that is right there? That's a grace statement. You're all going to stuff up. You're going to mess up. You're going to do your best, but your best is going to fall short. But after I rise again... Get to Galilee. I'll meet you there. You're actually going to see this a couple times. He says this to Peter, who is the one who thinks he's the ultimate of strength. Right? He's the guy who's got so much lats that he can't put his arms down his side. Just like a guy in our church that I know. His arms are like this and he just walks around like, I am so strong. Look at what, look at what they say. Well, look at what Peter says, 29. Even though they all fall, even though they are faithless, Not me, Jesus. My name is Peter. Remember? I'm the rock on which you're going to build the church. I will not. I love Peter because I so resonate with Peter. The amount of times I've told God, God, I'll never, ever say a naughty word again. Five weeks into COVID. God, I promise again, I'll never say a naughty word out of frustration. Some of you are like, are you allowed to say naughty words? No, you're not. But you're allowed to be honest when you say naughty words. Because I know all of you said naughty words through COVID. Don't you even look at me. Some of you are judging me. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter says emphatically, no, I won't. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all said the same thing. No, we won't. We will be faithful. How many people here want to be faithful? To God. That is our desire. But even in our good desire, you and I are broken. And some days we fall short of being faithful to God. And Jesus says, I was faithful for you. 
So it says they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. It's like, all right, Peter, you're going to die for me? Let's just see if you can just pray. Many years ago, I went to a, a, a prayer meeting at Papua New Guinea. So these uh, friends of my father, they did this Joshua prayer thing. So every night for a week, they would pray at 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock. So they would walk all the way to his house from their tribes, pray from 12 to 1, then all walk home. They'd do that all the way through. And then Saturday night, they prayed from 12 to 7 in the morning, and then they all got up and went and prepared church. So my mum, my dad and I, we were the only white people in this particular gathering when they're talking about it, and my parents were weak and said they were going to go to sleep because they are faithless. And I said, but I am faithful and I will represent the white Australians who know how to pray for four minutes and then fall asleep. So the next morning I woke up, I'm in some random New Guinea family's house and I'm like, how did I get here? And they're like, you prayed for like four minutes and so we took you home and we put you in there. It's this idea of like they could pray and these people prayed from like 12 to 7 then did church. I lasted like five minutes and then was snoring, embarrassing all of the Australian. I represented you all so poorly, I was faithless. Have you ever prayed with Koreans? We used to have Koreans in our, in our Bible college who came from sort of the Yonggi Cho area. And man, they, they pray and they pray and they pray. When I pray, I often have to have a pen and a pad so that as other things enter my mind, I have to, sorry God, sorry for a second, I can't concentrate on you for like two minutes. I need to write that down to get it out of my mind. Does anyone else struggle to pray for more than a few minutes? Right? We, we are often faithless. We are. But look at what Jesus says. Verse 35, it says, Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not pray for one hour, mate? You were going to die for me. Just pray for me. Let's not worry about the dying thing. Just pray. He can't do it. And he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You all desire to be faithful. But the reality is, is that you're not always. And so Jesus says, when you are faithless, be reminded that I'm faithful. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.